Uh, Gospel of John chapter 17, we've started a study, we're three or four weeks into the study now, we're, we're just going verse by verse and portion by portion through this chapter. It's a unique chapter in the Gospels and in God's Word. It's a prayer, it's a recording of a prayer that the Lord Jesus prayed. The, the timing is important, the context is important because he prayed it just before. It was the very end of the Last Supper, the last night he was spending with his disciples before he was about to be arrested, put on trial, uh, convicted of false charges based upon false testimony. He was going to be tortured, then he was going to be crucified, and of course, beyond that, the resurrection. But uh, just on the, on the eve of those things, he... Uh, after spending the evening with his disciples and, and really pouring into their hearts one more time uh, a deep and rich uh, sequence of instructions and exhortations, he, he does something unusual, which is he often prayed and he had, a, of course, a, a deep and, and continuing relationship in prayer with his heavenly father. But usually these kinds of prayers that he prayed he prayed in private. Um, they didn't listen in, so, so, so to speak, to what he had to say. And I think he intentionally uh, prayed in more detail, a longer prayer, uh, a more in-depth prayer than any other prayer of the Lord's that's recorded in Scripture for us, and allowed them the privilege of, of in a sense, listening in. Um, getting a peek, they, they were blessed to get a peek into the nature of the relationship between the Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus. And um, also they had a, a peek into the great plan and purpose of the Lord in all of these events that were unfolding. And so uh, we're taking our time, we're working our way through it. We've come uh, for our study today to verse three and uh, we're going to focus our entire study time today on verse three. But let me go ahead and read the first five verses again. These are, we've broken up the prayer into different sections. This very first section I've identified is the Lord is praying for himself. He's praying about the plan of salvation and how the events that are unfolding are the fulfillment of the great plan of salvation that that has been in the heart and mind of the Father and the Son from before the foundation of the world. Uh, but it is a prayer in which he is, he is um, addressing his priority heart concerns as he comes to this critical moment of his life and mission. So reading from verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, and again, those are the words to the disciples, in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, his, his last supper teaching and exhortations to his disciples. <clears throat> when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, in the portion that we've already covered, we've identified a, a key phrase in that he prays, he starts his prayer with, Father, the hour has come. This is the key moment, the critical moment, the, 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 the short hour, not literal 60 minutes, but the, the brief moment in time just before the great fulfillment of the plan of salvation, which is all going to come to bear in the events leading to his crucifixion. The hour has come. Then he, he, um, he prayed about a gift that he himself had received. And we focused on this in our last study. A special gift, a gift that could only have been given to the Son of God and was only given to the Son of God. Now, God is very uh, generous by nature. You've all experienced the generosity of God, whether you recognize it or acknowledge it or appreciate it or thank him for it or not. God is an exceptionally generous being. I, I, I can say this without any fear of contradiction. God is by far the most generous being that has ever existed or will ever exist. And he gives many gifts. We've all received many gifts from the Lord. But this is a unique gift. This is an exclusive gift, a special gift. And it was given to the Son of God. And he describes it as a gift of authority. He says, you have given him authority over all flesh. And we identified all flesh here as all humanity. The Son of God was given by the Father God who, who exclusively possessed this authority and now is sharing it with the Son. Not a temporary sharing, but a permanent sharing, an eternal sharing of a special measure of authority. <clears throat> the Bible teaches us that authority exists in our lives. Authority is a principle that is experienced and encountered in all social interactions at some level. Um, in every circumstance of life, there are, there are people that are in authority and people that are under authority. And we're talking about various spheres of authority, for instance, like uh, 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 national authority, state authority. Uh, we're talking about church authority in this circumstance, family authority, job or, or workplace authority. There's various measures and various expressions of authority. And God in every case is the source of that authority. All authority in life, in human affairs, derives from the authority that God possesses from his throne and then gives in terms of assigning smaller measures of his authority to specific roles in life that human beings fulfill according to God's assignment and purpose. But this is an authority that, that is greater than all of those. This is an unmeasured authority. This is an unlimited authority. This is a divine authority of deity that was exclusively possessed by the Father and then given as a special and exclusive gift from the Father to the Son. So that now, as he receives the gift, the Son holds the same measure of authority that previously only the Father held. It's authority over all, and in this case, the sphere is focused on all 
authority, excuse me, all flesh. The all flesh we defined as all humanity. And then he identified in the last part of our study that there was a purpose, a special purpose attached to that special gift of authority. And that special purpose is described in verse two. As he prays, since you have given him authority over all flesh, or over all humanity, to, or for this reason, for this purpose, this assignment, this mission, to give eternal life <coughs> to all whom you have given him. And the idea here, the backstory here is that God the Father, from before the foundation of the world, had his eye focused on specific human beings that would live in their own moment of history as that moment of history arrived. And he had his eye on them and set his heart upon them with a saving intention toward them. And the Son of God was given authority in order to save them. In other words, the story of salvation, which is so essential to our relationship to the Lord. It's the very foundation of our relationship with the Lord. The story of salvation is a story of an expression of divine authority. Usually when you hear the story of salvation, the element of authority is commonly left out and, and so, so much so that it's even commonly left out by believers telling the story of salvation to unbelievers or to one another. But Jesus doesn't leave out the element of authority in the story of salvation. It's an essential element. He was granted authority, which means if the father had his heart set on saving certain ones, the son of God needed divine authority over those ones in order to actually ensure their salvation. And I, I think I gave the example, and if I didn't, I should have, and it's certainly the best example I can think of. Paul the apostle himself says that he was saved in the way that he was saved in order to set an example for all of us to learn the true story of how we were saved, which is he was Saul of Tarsus, a, a, a great Jew among the Jews in terms of advancing in the Jewish religion of his day, but he did not understand that Jesus was the true Messiah and he was actively seeking to persecute and was effectively persecuting the early Christian community because he saw them as a, like a, a cultish offshoot of the Jewish religion and felt like he was doing God a service to er eradicate this cult. And so as he was traveling, you know the story, as he was traveling from one location to another in order to persecute more believers, <coughs> the Lord Jesus himself interrupted his journey intervened in his life and changed his life and did not ask Saul of Tarsus for permission to save him. He did not appeal to him to say, would you please believe in me? He simply laid his hand upon him and said, you are mine and your life story is changing as of this day. And his life was forever changed. And from Saul of Tarsus, he became Paul the Apostle. And the point of that is that the Lord saved him with an expression of divine authority. And that's the true story behind how each and every one of us was saved because apart from that expression of divine authority, you and I never would have turned toward the Lord when it was our moment in history 
our personal history to be saved, we would have continued like the lost sheep in, in Isaiah's imagery, we would have continued to pursue our own way and done so stubbornly had the Lord not intervened and had the Lord not interrupted our lives. Now, that brings us to verse three. In verse three, having just talked about the saving purpose of this expression of divine authority, which he links with this newly introduced idea. I say newly introduced. The Gospel of John uses this phrase a few times earlier in the Gospel, but it was, it was really new to the people, the disciples that were listening in. They had not yet personally experienced this. They were on the verge of having this experience, and it is the experience in descriptive terms of what it truly means to be saved. When he says in verse two, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So the reception of eternal life is equal to the experience of salvation. It is equal to the experience of what we call being born again. The reception of eternal life. And by eternal life, we're not just talking, just to be clear, we're not just talking about a life that never ends, though eternal life never does end, but we're talking about not just a quantity of life, an accumulation of years on into an eternal future. We're talking about a quality of life that never ends, a special life, a life that is beyond the natural life that we all experience and we've all been familiar with. It's a life that is associated with the nature of God himself and comes only from him and only through a saving relationship with him. So with that, in verse three, Jesus, in a sense, uh, and this is, this is hard to read in just in the flow of him praying. It's easy to miss this, but it, if you're, if you're writing this down, as of course John was doing later as he wrote the gospel, this verse three could have been put in using the grammatical notations we use when we write today. This could have been put in parentheses because it's connected directly to what he's just stated in verse two, but it's now functioning as a explanation of what he meant when he used the phrase eternal life. Because using the phrase by itself, it's entirely possible that the, the ones listening to him, his disciples, would misunderstand and miss the deeper point about what eternal life really is. And so what Jesus does for them in verse three is he gives a brief definition and a, a distinguishing definition that shows what eternal life is and what eternal life isn't. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I want to emphasize the first word. I believe Jesus did emphasize it. Of course, I wasn't there to hear the tone in his voice. So sometimes it's difficult to, <coughs> excuse me, match tone with writing, which 
you know, it's, it's hard to express tone in writing, but I believe this is how he said it. And this is eternal life. <coughs> Emphasizing the word this. Now, what would be the point of emphasizing it and why is that important to me? Why am I making that conclusion that he emphasized it in the way that he did? Because by emphasizing the word this, you are identifying eternal life and what he says about it in this verse as an exclusive thing, something that is unique and attached only to what he is about to say in the rest of verse 3. So the conclusion I draw from this is that he is describing the nature of what we can now call true Christianity. Even though at the moment that Jesus was praying this, the word Christianity had not yet been invented and had not yet been introduced into the spiritual vocabulary between Jesus and his disciples. He is, in essence, defining what it means to be a Christian and contrasting that with, by implication, what is not a Christian. And everything is hinged on this concept of rightly understanding eternal life in verse 3. So by that, what I mean is true Christianity is an experience of and an ongoing possession of eternal life from God. If you have received eternal life, then you are included in the mind and heart and perspective of the Lord Jesus. You're included in those that he identifies as belonging to him. And if you've never experienced eternal life, if you do not currently possess eternal life, then you are currently excluded from that group and from that number. So, therefore, Christianity is what we would call an exclusive religion. There are, uh, there are religions in this world, and there are some who represent or, or claim to represent Christianity <clears throat> that try to portray Christianity or other religions of the world as inclusive. What we mean by inclusive is simply everyone is welcome. And I will just say in terms of the call that we send out to the world, when we say, everyone, this is the truth of who Jesus is. This is the truth of what he accomplished. And we are calling out in a general call to the entire world, believe this truth. Everyone, as far as we are concerned, is free to believe that. But we also should know and understand that not everyone will believe that. And only those who believe it in a saving way and therefore receive eternal life from God and from the Son of God are included in the group. And if you don't have that eternal life, you are excluded. You were outside of the club, so to speak. And the only entry point into the club is the reception of eternal life. Now, <coughs> therefore, it's pretty important to know exactly what we're talking about when we refer to eternal life. And what Jesus does in the rest of the verse is he gives a, a definition of eternal life. I've read, I've read all the best commentaries on this particular verse, all the best Christian scholarship. It's interesting. There's a difference of opinion on this. 
<coughs> there are some that insist he's not actually defining eternal life here. He's just describing how you experience it. And I would certainly agree with, he's, with the idea that he's describing how you experience eternal life. But I, I, will, I will join with the others who say, no, he, he's doing more than just describing how to experience it. He's describing what it actually is. What is this thing that we call eternal life that distinguishes true believers, born-again believers, saved believers from every other person in the entire world? And Jesus, I think, gives us that distinguishing characteristic, that one thing that sets the true believer apart from all others. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So I want to spend the rest of our time this morning in our study looking at those two phrases. This is how the Lord Jesus saw eternal life. This is how he defined it. This is how he described it. And you know, there's a, a saying in our culture today. It's, get, it's gotten more and more popular. And uh, it's just an indicator of uh, a spiritually corrupting culture that surrounds us. The, the concept is um, when people refer to your truth. Have you, have you heard this statement before? Your truth? Well, that's your truth. That's not my truth. And with the idea being that truth is ultimately a subjective experience, meaning I, I can define for myself what is true. And you can define for yourself what is true. And I can't, I can't insist that my truth is also your truth, and you can't insist that your truth is also my truth. That's kind of how our culture is... Uh, is understanding truth nowadays. Um, let's just say that was the case. It's not the case because truth is ultimately biblically defined, not a subjective experience, although we all need to have a subjective experience of the truth. But truth is ultimately objective. It's something outside of ourselves. It's something greater than ourselves. It's not something that my small little mind can define for itself and then sit in comfort with my own little self-work definition of the truth. <clears throat> truth is a greater reality than myself. But let's just say it was true that <clears throat> one person's definition is different than another person's definition and all those definitions have their, have their own value. At the very least, what the Lord Jesus is doing here is he's describing his truth. So if it gets into a comparison with my truth versus his truth, who, whose, whose definition do you want to go with? You, you say, okay, well, Jesus thought this about eternal life. I've got my own ideas. A little bit different than his, but, you know, okay, that was his truth. I get that. But my truth is eternal life is something completely different. I, I will just tell you, his truth is closer to the truth than your truth because his truth is the truth i mean he earlier in the gospel said this about himself and you, you you're either going to accept this or you're going to reject it but you can't monkey around with it he said i am the way the truth the life no one comes to the father except through me so 
as he defines eternal life here, I think it's well worth our paying close attention to what he says about it. So this is the first statement. He makes two statements about eternal life. And they're both statements of, of knowledge. The first one is this. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. So how do we understand eternal life? Eternal life is defined as knowing the only true God. <coughs> so the question is, what does it mean to know God and the only true God at that? Um, we, we just passed, you wouldn't necessarily know this, and you didn't even need to know this, but we just passed a, a 50th year anniversary. I'm talking about Christianity, modern Christianity. We just passed a 50th year anniversary of a book, special book. It's not as special as the Bible, no book is, but it's um, in terms of books written by believers for the benefit of believers to help them understand biblical concepts better. <coughs> Some Christian books are more important than others. Some are written to address more significant issues than others. And this book, we written 50 years ago by a man named J.I. Packer, was called Knowing God. How many of you have ever taken the time, or even knew to take the time, and actually read J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God? A few of you have, good for you. Uh, 50th anniversary, I, I um, have known the Lord for 45 years now, and I, so when I first read it, I think it was my second year in the Lord, maybe my third, so the book was like seven or eight years old by the time I got a hold of it. And um, it changed my heart's perspective about knowing God, <coughs> about my relationship with him. I would really recommend it because the book is written to describe the essence of verse three of John 17. And this key element of the prayer of the Lord Jesus, defining eternal life and what it truly means to know the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom the one true God sent into this world to accomplish a mission that no other could accomplish. Um, so that's a plug. I'm not getting any benefit from the possibility of you after uh, hearing this message going, um, going, I mean, most, I don't know where you buy your, your books, christianbook.com as uh, a location. You can do it on Amazon wherever you buy your books. Um, I'd recommend, if you've never read it, I, you're missing out. I would, I would urge and encourage, I'll, I'll say it one more time and then I'll move on. I would urge and encourage every person here should read that book one time in their Christian life. And if it, how many years ago was it for those of you who did read it? I would read it again and I'm intending to because somewhere along the line, I lent my copy out, and as many of my best books go, uh, I've never, never saw it again. So one of you have it. You know, that's okay, keep it and read it. I'm gonna get myself another copy. They've got some nice new editions, like a hardback edition. Uh, I'm gonna invest in a hardback and, and get it, and I'm going to reread it. So what does it mean to know the one true God? There are two essential elements that are implied and indicated in a true knowledge of God equaling eternal life. This, this is what Jesus is actually talking about. There's two critically important elements. 
Number one, we have true knowledge about God in terms of factual information. Factual information about God. And many times believers will you know, encounter the idea of knowing God and they will say, I don't need to know about God, I just want to know him personally. Now I will, I will agree with you, it's critically important. Your, your eternal relationship with God hinges on you personally coming to know God, but do not discount the importance and the value of learning factual information about God as long as it's true and accurate factual information about him. Like it, it would be like saying, okay, my wife and I have a relationship in which she knows me in a personal way, but would it affect her relationship with me in an adverse way if she didn't know any facts about me? She knows me personally, we're married. We have as close of a relationship personally as two human beings can have. But let's just say she knew no facts about me whatsoever. And she just said, I don't need to know any facts about you. I just know you. But then you don't. That's the point. Is the factual information about another person that you intend to enter into a relationship with and then grow in that relationship. The factual information is not the totality of the relationship but it is a building block. It's essential to knowing the person. Facts about a person are critically important as foundations for the relationship that's intended to grow and to build with that person. So if that's true about knowing God, that it's important, not just like mildly important, but critically important to have the right factual information about God. Where do you find that information? Yeah, you find it in scripture. Now, of course, I'm recommending a book by J.I. Packer along, to read along with scripture because it's a, it's a faithful and effective and, and accurate representation of the principles of scripture in terms of knowing who God actually is. But first and foremost, you go to scripture because God, apart from what has been revealed about him by God himself, God is an unknowable being. Why? Well, he describes himself as invisible. It's hard to know an invisible person unless that invisible person makes himself known in a way that you can grasp and understand and conceptualize. And then the idea that what he has revealed in scripture about himself is his own self-disclosure, his own self-revelation, means it's faithful and true information because you and I may not know ourselves well enough to pass on accurate information about ourselves to others. <coughs> what I mean by that is we all tend to pass on our, our best ideas about ourselves when we're describing ourselves to others. But God is faithful in his word, in scripture, to pass on exceptionally accurate information about who he exactly is. Now, this study of all of that information, because those principles, those revelations of who he is, are woven like threads, like golden threads throughout scripture from Genesis chapter one to Revelation and the very end of what is written 
as revealed scripture. But what, what great men of God have done throughout the course of Christian history is they've, they've identified those golden threads. They haven't removed them in a, in a way of damaging them from the text of scripture, but just collected those threads and organized them for us so that we can see all of the pertinent information about who God is. And we call that process and that study systematic theology. This is what Steve has been doing for us on Thursday nights and teaching through systematic theology. And so there is a, a, a first and most important section in the study of systematic theology, and that is who is God himself? Who is he? What's he like? What kind of a being is he actually in terms of what he has revealed about himself? So factual information, true and accurate factual information about God is foundational to your experience of eternal life. But it doesn't stop there and it doesn't end there. The second element, equally as important, one as a foundation for the other, is what I'm calling relational true knowledge. This is greater than knowledge about a person, but this is now personal knowledge of a person. <coughs> if I said to you, you know, I'm a bit of a history buff. I am a bit of a history buff. But if I said to you, I'm a bit of a history buff and, and I, I've really, you know, my preference is I, I like to focus on the life of Abraham Lincoln. And I've read all the books that are available, all the books on Abraham Lincoln. And if you then said to me, but do you really know Lincoln? The answer would be, I would say, I, if I was being honest, I would have to say, kind of. I kind of know Lincoln because I know all of the facts and information about him, and, but the greatest amount of information that helps me to know him, at least in part, is what? Not just, okay, Abraham lived during this, this set of years, he you know, served as the president of the United States, it was during the Civil War, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, all, all of these facts about, about Lincoln. How would I, having never personally met him, how would I possibly know him, not just know about him? I would have to read his personal words about himself, wouldn't I? Like the letters of Lincoln, or the speeches of Lincoln. <laughs> where he is actually speaking, and I get a sense, even though, uh, of course, there's no way I can go back in time, go back in history and personally shake Lincoln's hand and sit down and, and ask him questions and interact with him, but by reading the information that comes from him about him is going to take me a big step further in knowing him than just knowing the dates and the facts and the figures about Lincoln. Not that those things are unimportant. They're just not personal knowledge of him, true relational knowledge. So the idea here when Jesus says, this is eternal life, this and nothing else, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. They need to know the right facts and information about you, but they need to know you, they need to have met you, they need to have interacted with you personally. Now, we do that by focusing our attention like we're doing going through John 17, 
if we pay close and right attention as we go through this entire chapter in the weeks and, and months ahead of us in our study, we're going to walk away from this study with a greater personal relationship with the one that was praying these words than we had before the study because we're interacting with his own heart expressions and concerns and priorities and thoughts. And by interacting with those, we are getting to know the one that expressed those in that moment. Now, of course, there's something even greater than that, even greater than factual information and even greater than just reading the personal words of that person and that greatest thing of all is the one thing I can't do in relationship to Abraham Lincoln. <clears throat> and that's actually meeting the person. Now, when it comes to knowing God, he has provided a way that we could never have provided for ourselves. If you set out at the beginning of your life and said, I have one goal in life, I want to meet God. I want to meet the one true and only God. I want to meet him, I want to get to know him, I want to interact with him. Where would you go to do that? How would you accomplish that goal? The answer is you could not possibly accomplish it unless he wanted to be met by you. Unless he appeared, unless he made himself known, unless he introduced himself to you, unless he met you, you could not possibly meet him. Again, the best example I can think of is the one I mentioned before, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. He thought he knew God. He certainly knew information about God. He had studied the first five books of the Old Testament scriptures as a Pharisee. He was super familiar with them. He had a knowledge about God, but he had never personally met God at all. But the Lord himself met him on the road to Damascus, introduced himself to him, and that began a lifelong relationship, a deepening relationship with him. And that, like I was describing earlier, then forms a template for our own personal experience in meeting and getting to know God in this relationship that Jesus defines as eternal life. It involves a personal meeting, an initial personal meeting that you can't set up you can't cause to happen, but he can, and if he intends to save you, he did or will. And once that meeting takes place, that personal meeting takes place, it establishes a subsequent and ever-growing relationship with him that will last not just the rest of your years in this world, but for all of eternity to follow. Now, the last issue I want to address before we move to the next section is this. How does the mechanism of knowing God equal the experience of eternal life? So the idea is Saul of Tarsus, who did not possess eternal life, he had factual correct information about God, some incorrect information as well, but he had factually correct information about God in his in his mind and in his heart. But he did not know God and he did not possess eternal life. He was met by the Lord Jesus himself in a heavenly appearance on the road to Damascus. And in that encounter, he received eternal life 
through meeting the Lord Jesus, but how does that happen? What's the mechanism that describes that? And the best example I could think of is, I'm gonna use an Old Testament example of Moses, famous example. So the Lord selected Moses to be his prophet and his deliverer for the people of God, the Israelites, <coughs> who were uh, in a circumstance of slavery to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. The Lord sent Moses and he gave him the ability to do a, a series, a sequence of 10 great miracles that we call the 10 plague judgments upon Egypt. And uh, in that, Pharaoh released the children of Israel. They, you know the story. They, they left Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They entered into the wilderness. The Lord led them by a pillar of fire and cloud through the wilderness journey. But at the beginning of the journey, he led them to the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai. And at the foot of the mountain, he had the children of Israel establish their camp at the foot of the mountain. Then he called to Moses and said, Moses, I want you to come up to the summit of Mount Sinai and you're going to meet with me there. And that same pillar of fire and cloud that led them through the wilderness then descended upon the summit of Mount Sinai so that a cloud, this glory cloud, covered the mountaintop. And Moses left the camp of Israel, trekked up to the summit of Mount Sinai entered into the cloud and disappeared in the cloud from the view of the Israelites. And he remained there for 40 days and 40 nights. He amazingly, and it, this is a miraculous thing that happened, it can't physically occur, naturally occur. He would have died without the, the miraculous power of God at work. But while he was in that cloud for 40 days and 40 nights, he didn't eat a single bite and he didn't drink a single drop. And he was in the immediate presence of the Lord, having already met the Lord back in Egypt, now he's in the presence of the Lord. And what's happening to him? Something amazing is happening as that this newly established relationship between God and Moses is now growing. And eventually Moses leaves the cloud and he begins his trek down to the bottom of the mountain and there's other elements of the story, but on his way down, what happens is the children of Israel see him coming and they are struck by a change in the appearance of Moses. What's the change in his appearance? His face is glowing and it's glowing so brightly that they are actually being blinded by the amount of light that's emanating from his face and they cry out asking as an appeal please put a veil over your face because you are blinding us and so he puts a veil over his face and as the story continues, whenever he would go into the tent of meeting, Moses, to meet with the Lord, he would take the veil away. And whenever he would come out to interact with the children of Israel, he would put the veil back over his face. Why was his face glowing? He was in the immediate presence of the Lord. He was growing in his personal, relational knowledge of the Lord. And so he was, the only way I could describe it from our standpoint is he was soaking in, in that relationship of intimacy with the Lord on the mountaintop, he was soaking in the nature of the Lord. 
doesn't mean he was becoming the Lord. It means, though, that he was being so affected by his relational proximity to the Lord that he was being changed by that proximity to the one that he was getting to know. That is the best Old Testament example of what Jesus is describing as the experience of eternal life in the personal relational knowledge of God, the one true and living God. We soak in the nature of God and are changed and transformed by it. Now, from there, let's look at a passage. I want to, from this point, the rest of our time, I want to, uh, I'm going to come back once to John 17, but I want to turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter describes this process, this experience for us. And he makes what I consider to be maybe the most amazing statement anywhere in the New Testament as part of what I'll be reading. <coughs> Excuse me. I've got in our notes here in the overhead, I've got 2 Peter 1, 1 through 3, but I'm going to read through verse 4. This is the beginning of Peter's letter. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I, I want you to notice in the grammar of how Peter describes that. It's not the main point of what I'm pointing out, but it is an important point to notice because of where we're heading next in the prayer of Jesus. He talks about the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's identifying Jesus as both God and Savior. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? How will you experience multiplied grace and peace in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord? Well, which kind of knowledge? The two kinds we've already spent the last few minutes describing. Um, informational knowledge, true and accurate revealed by God himself informational knowledge about who he is and what he's like, but personal, relational knowledge of having met him and am now growing in relationship with him. Verse 3, his divine power <clears throat> has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So to be called into an eternal life relationship with God is to be called into a shared experience of the glory of God, like Moses and his face shining with God's glory. By which, verse 4, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, through the, pro the revealed promised words of God, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That is the phrase that I'm identifying as the most amazing statement anywhere in God's word. That you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. All right, now, heading back one last time to John 17. 
I want to spend the rest of our time on the last phrase. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I want to define this as uh, probably the most significant and anywhere in, in God's word. The word and is a small word. It's, you know, it's an easily overlooked word in terms of its biblical and theological significance. But as it functions here, the word and is hyper, hyper important, super important. He says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and that they know Jesus Christ, the one whom you've sent. Meaning that whatever was just implied and indicated about the importance, the essential significance of a true knowledge of God bringing eternal life, the same applies for a true knowledge of the Lord Jesus. You can't separate a true knowledge of God from a true knowledge of the Lord Jesus and set them against each other. The implication, the indication is that the only way to, true, to have a true knowledge of the only true God is to have a true knowledge of Jesus Christ whom God sent. Because God is so unknowable apart from making himself known, he has found ways throughout human history to make himself known. There are more than one ways that he has made himself known. He's made himself known in part in the creation around us. Psalm 19, some of us have been meditating through the Psalms together. Psalm 19, you might remember, we recently spent a, a couple of days in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. What does that mean? It means that as we look at the sun and moon and stars and the vastness of God's created universe, there is an ongoing testimony every day and every night that some amazing being must be behind all of this. Some powerful and wise being beyond all human comprehension of power and wisdom must be behind all of this. So God has made himself known in creation. And in the second part of Psalm 19, God has especially made himself known in revealed scripture. But the highest expression of God making himself known in all of human history and all of eternity to follow is in the person of his son whom he sent. And the idea here that is linked in the heart and mind of the Lord Jesus as he's praying, and we're privileged along with the disciples to listen in to what he's saying and to catch the significance of what he's saying <coughs> is that eternal life is only experienced through the knowledge of the Son of God, which then gives us knowledge of the Father God. But you cannot know the Father apart from the Son, and unless the Son makes him known to us. So let's look at some passages real quick. I'm just going to go quick with these, because we're right at the end of our time. For, uh, first one, maybe the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16. I wish I had time for the whole context. <coughs> but John 3.16. <coughs> for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
It's only in the giving of the Son of God to this world and ultimately his sacrifice on the cross and then his triumphant resurrection from the dead that we can experience eternal life. In other words, eternal life from heaven is poured out into this world, but it's funneled exclusively through the person and work of Christ. There's no other way to achieve it, no other way to receive it. 1 John chapter 1. <clears throat> this portion I'm going to read deserves a much fuller treatment. Um, David did that for us couple of years ago as he took us through on Thursday nights first John the book of first John did an excellent job in this section <coughs> first John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 <coughs> that which we that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life the life was manifest he's talking about Jesus as a human being, becoming the Son of God, God the Son, getting up off of his throne, incarnating as a human being. And when he did, it was the incarnation of eternal life itself as a human being. The life was manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard and proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. <clears throat> this is why Jesus is exclusively who he is. There's no other person that can lay claim to who he actually is and what he accomplished. He is the incarnation of eternal life. There's no way to receive it. There's no way to have it other than through a personal, relational knowledge of him. One more, 1 John chapter 5. We're right there in 1 John. Just jump over to chapter 5. I'll read verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him in, who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He is eternal life. So how do you know, how do you receive eternal life? By knowing him. By being in his relational proximity by, by soaking in what emanates from him by his very nature. Final passage. We'll end with this one today. Matthew chapter 11. We went through this in detail years ago as we went through the Gospel of Matthew together. Uh, those messages are still available on Sermon Audio if you want to listen to them. <coughs> so I won't have time, of course, to do a full, full explanation of this section. It's a wonderful section on this theme, though. I'm reading from verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. So this is another moment where we get to hear the Lord Jesus praying. It's not as lengthy. It's not as, as, as involved as John 17, but equally important. 
At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And then catch this phrase. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So how do you experience eternal life? There's only one way. Knowing the Father and knowing the Son. But they have an exclusive relationship with each other. And no one really knows the Father like the Son does. And no one really knows the Son like the Father does. Except for those blessed ones that the Son chooses to reveal both the Father and the Son too. And they receive in that new relationship that's been established that eternal life that the Father and the Son exclusively possess. And then that establishes a lifelong growing relationship which is then briefly described in verses 28 through 30. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's a learning relationship. It's one where no matter how much you learn, there's more to learn because you're dealing with an eternal and infinitely glorious being. And there's, there's an infinite amount to learn about him. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for allowing us the privilege along with the disciples that night at the scene of the Last Supper. Thank you for the privilege of listening in to the prayer that the Lord Jesus prayed to you. <clears throat> and I'm thankful, Lord, for what he declared in verse 3 about knowing you, the only true God, and knowing Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I'm thankful, Lord, that in that knowledge, in that true and factual knowledge you've revealed, and in that relational knowledge that you've established in causing us to meet you and to come to know you, in spirit and in truth. I'm thankful, Lord, for the eternal life that you have poured into our souls. And if any among us have not yet met you in that way, I pray for them, Lord, that you would be gracious to them the same way you were gracious to us. Thank you so much. Cause us, Lord, to grow. Cause us to be learners who uh, appreciate and understand the, the great and awesome privilege that you have given us to have this eternal life relationship with you. Blessed be your name and the name of your son. Amen.